My name is Randy Ryland, and I've been a professional journalist for almost 40 years. Uh, I'm working now under contract with the Piedmont Journalism Foundation on a uh, project that, that's really significant and meaningful to this community, and it's really focusing on the, the ripple effects of the opioid crisis. Uh, clearly, this has had a tremendous effect on this community and the region. Um, and the, the thing that happens, though, is that understandably, a lot of the focus has been on the deaths involved or the overdoses, which is makes perfect sense. But there are other aspects of this, which we refer to as a ripple effects. And these can have short term impacts and impacts that last for many, many years. Uh, in fact, I spoke to Mayor Steve Williams, who's mayor of Huntington, West Virginia, uh, often described as ground zero of the opioid epidemic. And, you know, it's his feeling that uh, this is one of the biggest threats to the future of the view of the United States um, and that it can be something that can have an impact for decades if it's not addressed properly. So it's important to understand what all those effects are. Um, and it ranges from uh, one thing that we'll cover in the first part of the series, the impact on social services in local communities. Specifically, what often happens is if you have an addiction problem with parents, the children may have to go into foster care. Uh, that has put a, a greater strain on social services and obviously on the children who are put in those situations. Another aspect that directly affects families is something called neonatal abstinence syndrome. And this is when babies are born addicted, essentially, uh, because their mother was, was addicted during a pregnancy. Um, and these are difficult babies simply because they're going through withdrawal in the hospital. It puts a lot of strain on the hospital staff and an increased cost. These are expensive. It's been estimated that it costs three to four times more to care for a what's known as NAS babies, neonatal abstinence syndrome babies, than a, a birth without it. Um, so those are just two things. But then you get beyond that into the impact on law enforcement, the cost there, the impact on first responders, the uh, uh, how that affects first responders when they're out reviving people and trying to save people a lot. That's very stressful. The impact on hospital staffs. Uh, even the impact on local employers. If you have people dealing with a substance abuse problem, there's more likely to be uh, more absenteeism uh, or lower productivity. And they're the sort of things that you often don't think about. Um, there are generally higher HIV and hepatitis rates. And you can see that in the statistics because more people are using and sharing needles. And, and it's, a, it's a problem that's down the list, people don't pay a lot of attention to necessarily, but it's a serious uh, a public health problem that needs to be addressed. Um, and, and then there are, you know, there are costs to obviously to the families who have, who have gone through this. It's, it's a, a, a really terrible uh, thing to go through. There's no question about that. And I've interviewed a number of people whose children have either committed suicide because of their addiction or they overdosed. And uh, one of the big challenges for these survivors is, you know, often they struggle with what, what else could I have done? Um, and, and sometimes there's just not an answer 
Um, you can try all kinds of things, but it's 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 a very complicated and complex issue. I think the thing that um, we want to address in the series are some of the issues going forward. Uh, there's no question that there's much greater awareness of the the uh, damage that's done by addiction and to all to communities and families. Um, but the question is now, how do you go forward from this? Um, what sort of things do you do in the community to make sure that you help those who have had addiction problems, help them recover, help them move forward with their lives? Uh, you know, some people have told me, people who have been addicts have told me there's nothing worse than when you come out of jail and uh, you, you've served a sentence for uh, drug possession. Um, you're dealing with recovery. You've lost your license. You've lost your job. You've probably been thrown out of your house. You have no money. You have no place to live. You have no job. You have no car. Uh, so where do you go? What do you do? And it's not to say that the community has to do everything for people in this situation. But as someone put it, there's not a gentle handoff from jail or from the overdose in the ER to rebuilding your lives. Um, and an, another misunderstanding is that, uh, you know, there's too much focus that's been paid in the past on uh, putting someone in recovery for 28 days, a program for 28 days. And, and almost to a person, every expert I talked to said, well, that's just folly. Um, it just doesn't work. And, and recovery can take years. Um, uh, it's a long process. It's both uh, a physiological uh, recovery and a psychological one. And in fact, usually with addiction issues, there are mental health issues, uh, one often leading to the other. Um, and, you know, I think uh, we will talk about some of the um, uh, differences of opinion on how to move forward with treatment. Uh, one thing that's been proposed and, and supported more on the medical side is something called medication-assisted treatment. And that's the use of Suboxone or, or Methadone, essentially, uh, allowing someone to deal with their cravings and eventually be brought, uh, reduced in their need for this. Um, but there are those who will argue that that's replacing one drug with another. Um, and, and that is really one of the debates that's going on in the community. Um, there are also issues related to something called harm reduction programs. Um, and that's uh, things such as needle exchange. Uh, it's it's uh, the use of Narcan. Um, uh, a lot of people feel, not a lot of people, but people will will say, well, maybe we, we're not really prepared for that. We're, we're not really comfortable with having a needle exchange program, whereas others in the public health field will say that is critical to reducing HIV and hepatitis. Um, if you want to deal with these public health issues, you need to address that. So these are these are not easy issues. These are complex issues, and they're they're the sort of things that take a lot of serious discussion and a lot of uh, research that people need to do. Um, one thing related to Narcan that we'll talk about in this series is uh, it's been tremendously effective in saving lives. Um, the, the thing that's happened in recent years is. Narcan is so accessible, and, and just to explain, Narcan is the brand name for the medication that's used by first responders or um, police or people in the ER to revive someone who's having an overdose. Um, it could take 
one dose of Narcan, it could take three, it could take four doses. Now, the thing that's changed since Narcan has become much more available is that, um, um, and this is anecdotal information I get from law enforcement officials, is that people who are using uh, addictive drugs are more likely now to do it in public areas uh, as opposed to in their bedroom or their bathroom because they know there will be someone around with Narcan who can revive them. Um, and so it's a change in behavior. Now, people would argue, look, all we're doing is allowing people who continue to have this addiction problem to survive. Um, the counter to that is that if this person survives, there's a chance of their recovery. And, and also, you know, you need to give people that opportunity. The first time may not work. The second time may not work. You have to keep on working at it. But anyone who's been in this situation, uh, any parent who's been in this situation would say, in fact, one did say to me, I just wanted one more chance for my child to survive. Um, and, and that's a really key part of this. But with what happens with the impact of Narcan is you're seeing the number of fatal overdoses decrease. Um, now, you could draw the conclusion that, wow, we've turned the corner. You know, we're, we're really moving in the right direction with this. We, we've kind of beat this whole opioid thing. You talk to law enforcement people and their feeling is that doesn't necessarily mean that usage is dropping. More than anything, it means that Narcan is saving people. And, and now the people you're saving, they still have an addiction problem. So you still need to address that problem. But the danger is that is one of perception. People can look at the statistics and say, well, we feel like we've, we've really turned the corner on this. Um, maybe it's not, maybe we don't have to pay as much attention to it. Maybe we don't need to worry about uh, providing more housing for people recovering or providing jobs for people who need those jobs as they're coming out of recovery because it doesn't seem like it's such a big problem. And, and that's a, you know, it's an odd issue. You have this drug that's saving lives, but at the same time, it can skew the perceptions of how things are going in this fight against the opioid crisis. Um, and then another part of this, of the series would be dealing with a simple matter of stigma. Um, uh, again, there's much greater awareness of this problem now than there was five years ago. Um, but the stigma persists. Uh, there are people who will not share any information about, uh, about a drug problem they may have because they're afraid of how they'll be perceived. There are, um, I've heard the story of women who were pregnant um, and had a baby when they were addicted, uh, and then they were using methadone as part of their treatment. But they would tell the judge, I'm going to be off this methadone methadone." I'm going to be off this methadone soon because they're afraid they're going to lose their child. And, and the judge will tell them, and the judge in this case did tell them, no, this is what you need to keep your child. But there's that perception that if I'm, if people think I'm an addict, they're going to think less of me. They won't give me a job. They'll take my baby away. You know, all those sort of things are much more persistent um, and they're harder to beat. Uh, and, and I think that that's, that's one of the things that, in all the discussions, you really have to turn the corner where people see this as a uh, it's it's a mental health disorder and it's a sickness. Um, it's not a choice. 
And, and that's the stigma part of it that's always been in the mix, that people are choosing to do this. And I can, can't tell you the number of people who have said to me, no one, no addict willingly says, I want to be an addict. No, and that sounds silly, but, you know, there is that, that assumption that you make this choice of this lifestyle. Um, what you generally hear is that initially um, addicts may do this, uh, may start using for mental health reasons, or maybe they use it for pain initially. Uh, they use painkillers. Um, but ultimately, it becomes a matter of I just don't want to be sick. Um, that's why I'm getting I want to get high again because I just can't face with being sick. And, and, and so you have to deal with the, you have to understand that there are changes in people's brains when they start using um, opioids. Um, and it has a long-term impact. You have to work on that. Uh, and, and it's not like you can just say, you need to become a better person. Um, uh, there are people I've talked to whose children were addicts. And, and understandably, their response was always initially, what's wrong with you? Why can't you get it together? Why are you ruining your life? And, and it was only afterwards, and sadly, in many cases, after a child died, where they came to understand that it wasn't a decision that they were making. That as someone put it, uh, my daughter's brain was hijacked. Um, and, and I was wrong to condemn her. Um, it's, it's, it's hard to admit that, but I think that's a key part of this. And, and the more you can have the community understand that this is a long-term, um, uh, crusade that it has to carry out, um, the meetings and the raising of awareness are really valuable. That's a good start, but you have to go beyond that. You have to keep on building. You have to understand the complications of this, the complexities of it, the challenges of it. You have to understand that people need help. They're in a very deep hole and they need help getting out of that hole. And, and they're the sort of things that we want to cover in this series that we hope that we can help explain to people, that we hope we can make people understand uh, that there are a lot of layers to this. Uh, we'll also look at other communities where they have taken steps that have had some success. There's no magic bullet, but as someone said, you know, maybe there's buckshot. Uh, uh, you know, we can take a lot of different approaches and maybe together they can have an impact. And I think that's that's the sort of thing that it's it's great that the community has come together. You have so many people, particularly in Fauquier and law enforcement in the schools, uh, in local government, in the hospitals. They're all talking and trying to work together, but it needs to be a sustained effort. And, and that's what we want to do is just uh, bring attention to all the different issues that people need to consider so they understand how complicated it can be. So I hope it's helpful. Uh, and and uh, please let us know if you have questions and if you want more information, we'll do whatever we can to provide that. Thank you very much. Falkier.com.